0: Good evening, please turn with me and your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians, what we call Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, the text to which I'd like to turn our attention is chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. We're continuing our study of this Pauline epistle and so far we've been impressed with Paul's concern for the primacy of Christ he is continually and in many ways pointing back to God and his work in the life of the Corinthians he's writing to a letter he's writing a letter to a church that's become puffed up they're puffed up with their knowledge and they've forgotten how to love they spoke much of their faith they boasted in their gifts But inside, they had been tempted and have succumbed to little bits of unbelief. Wrong thoughts and wrong beliefs about themselves and about others. And as we'll see, we too can succumb to this temptation. We can forget how we are connected to Christ. And therefore, how we are connected to one another. And we can become puffed up. Rather than having a faithful, a trusting confidence in Christ... We become proud, proud of ourselves, proud of our gifts, proud of our knowledge, and that overconfidence in self can bear the fruit of doubt, as we will see. So let's begin by reading this whole Thanksgiving section, verses 4 through 9, and we'll focus on verses 6 and 7. Hear the word of our Lord. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus Father, we need you to speak through your word. We need you to move within us, to open our eyes and our hearts to receive your word. Lord, as the old prayer says, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Let's begin by first looking at verse 6 and we'll look at the testimony of Christ. The testimony of Christ. Verse 6 says again, even as the testimony of Christ or the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. We could translate it the witness of Christ or the witness about Christ. The word testimony is actually the Greek word from which we derive the word martyr. That is someone who testifies or who witnesses to the value of Christ even through their very death. And combined with the preceding verses, we can put Paul's logic together in this way. I thank God that you were richly blessed in Jesus Christ as his testimony or his message was confirmed among you. The message of witness was validated among you. And what exactly is this testimony? Well, it's the gospel. The gospel was preached by Paul and they heard it and the testimony was received in faith. And Paul is again shifting the focus away from the Corinthian believers and back to Christ. It was the testimony of Christ, not the testimony of Paul, not the testimony of Apollos or of Peter that was being confirmed among them. It was the witness of Christ and not the witness of anything else. That's the reason for their spiritual life and their spiritual gifts and their graces. It was a message that was from outside of themselves. Indeed, in spite of themselves, and that's the reason they have any grace at all. Christ is the reason, not the Corinthians. And this is actually setting up the stage for some of Paul's coming arguments. It was the testimony of Christ that was the grace of God among them, not anything else. It was a testimony. It was a message. It was a preached word. It was the emboldened charisma, the preaching. That was among them and fallen man is never satisfied with Christ's gospel. Paul says later in this chapter that the Jews wanted signs, right? They wanted miracles. They wanted visible pictures and testimonies and the Greeks wanted wisdom. Unbelievers want something impressive. They want something tangible, something they can put their hands upon, something that they can do themselves. They want hard facts. They want reproducible data. They want what? he calls science on his terms. He wants to be able to point to something immediate and know that the evidence is true. He doesn't want to trust a message about a savior whom he cannot test, who redeems him from a sickness he cannot see, to take him to a heavenly realm that he cannot know in this age. To put it another way, fallen man is usually okay with religion and morality. And in fact, he may even champion those things. Right? Many pagans affirm the goodness of Judeo-Christian ethics. But when it comes to believing in Christ, he cannot and he will not do it because he cannot touch it and hold it and test it. In short, he wants the good things that come from faith without having the costly faith itself. He wants the benefits of God, but he doesn't want... Belief in God. And how often do we find that to be the case in our life? We want the benefits of the God of all grace. We want the fruit of genuine wisdom. But we don't want to submit and believe. We don't want to trust God. We want to have a mature faith. But we don't want to have to go through the trials in life that actually build faith. We want to we don't want to trust God's providence and plan for our lives because we can't see how it's going to work out. We can't figure it out and so we get anxious and worried. You can't have peace in this life without faith in God. We're not sure what God wants us to do with ourselves. What the next step is in life and so we get antsy, we get frustrated. We're like the Jews. We want God to tear open the heavens and tell us with a loud, audible voice, This is what you should do. We want signs and wonders. We want a faith that doesn't require faith. What we're doing in that moment is we're doubting God and we're seeking a religion that doesn't require us to have trust in that God. We're doubting what God has said about the sufficiency of Scripture. That he has fully and completely given us everything we need in his word. We have enough wisdom in scripture. If we just have the faith to ask him for the eyes to see it. We have enough to walk in holiness. If we would just depend on God for the text to be open to us. We don't lack for spiritual insight and answers. It's in his word of truth. Further in that moment we're also doubting the testimony of Christ specifically seen in the work of His Holy Spirit. Christ tells us in His Word that the Holy Spirit will guide us in truth, that He will guide us in holiness, and that He will work within us to grow us into the image of Christ from one degree to the next. We doubt this, and so we instead seek quick fixes. We want to rely on our own strength or the strength of someone next to us. We want to put our faith not in God, but in whatever the new book is, or the new class, or the the next and greatest teacher or preacher or any other man-centered effort rather than trusting that God will use his sufficient word in the hands of the Holy Spirit to grow us and guide us and keep us until the very end. In short, we doubt the testimony of Christ. And what we need in the midst of that doubt, what we need most, is to remember the testimony. What's the content of the testimony of Christ. We need to remember when we doubt the message what's in the message. And what is that testimony? It's that Christ came and he lived and he died in the place of a sinful and doubting people. A people that not only could not but would not on their own believe the testimony of Christ. And yet he came. And he came and he conquered stubborn and rebellious hearts and remade them into loving, pliable hearts of flesh. He came to subdue anxious and worrisome spirits and remake them into quiet and trusting souls. And He is the victorious Son, and He has sent His very own Spirit to unite us with Him. And by that union with Christ, the Holy Spirit works to illumine the pages of Scripture for us and to guide us into All truth and to grant us the wisdom we need to walk in this world in full holiness. The cure for souls who doubt the sufficiency of the testimony of Christ is to remember the testimony itself. The cure for those who want more than a message. Who demand signs is to remember the content of the message. And in remembering the content rightly we will come to reckon with the sufficiency of the message. That the Son of God became man. He died in the place of sinful man to grant those that repent and believe a life of faith and growth that could never happen apart from belief in that message. And that could be you tonight. If you have doubted God and His message, doubted the sufficiency of the cross, doubted the sufficiency of His testimony in God's Word, then remember again the content of the testimony. He came to seek and to save the lost, which includes doubters like me and like you. And when you come to him, you will no longer be seen as a doubter. You will be seen as a faithful son. You'll no longer be separated from God. You will be part of his family. And that's the good news of the testimony. We've looked at the content of the testimony and its sufficiency. Now let's look at the second point, the testimony confirmed The confirmation of the testimony. Again, verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they've been enriched in every way as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among them. And this language of confirmation, this confirmed is a metaphor actually taken from commercial law at the time. The language of confirmation is a technical term for guaranteeing a legal contract. It's strengthening, it's endorsing, it's stamping. And he does something similar in 2 Corinthians 1.21 when he speaks of the confirmation of us in Christ. He uses the same technical language to say that our mutual existence in Christ is guaranteed. It's locked in. It's binding. It's irrevocable. Without a doubt, Christ's testimony, the fullness of the gospel message, has been guaranteed. It's legally binding and it's divinely assured. It's a message that can be trusted. And the more that it's confirmed among us, the greater reason we have to trust in the message itself. That's the testimony of Corinth's history and that's the experience of church throughout time. God confirms the message of His gospel through the gifts of the Holy Spirit and their exercise among the people of God. God gifts the Corinthians with gifts of speech and knowledge and they use those gifts to proclaim the gospel with fruitfulness, thus confirming again the validity of the message. And the same should be true of our experience in the church. God pours out His Holy Spirit. He grants gifts and graces and through the experience of those things, the testimony of Christ should be continually confirmed among us. Consider some of the ways that God does this. Right, Every time we see someone converted and come to faith in Jesus Christ, that confirms again that the gospel is actually the power of God unto salvation. Confirming the testimony of Christ. Every time we see a baptism, that confirms that Jesus will be with us in our Great Commission, even to the end of the age, just as He has promised. Of particular encouragement to me, every time we see a saint of God edified through a run-of-the-mill, ordinary sermon, the testimony of Christ is again confirmed that His word will not return void and that He will build His church. Every time we see a mourning soul comforted, That confirms again God's promise that He has not left us alone in this life and that He will be near to the brokenhearted. Every time a husband seeks to cherish and love his wife or a wife chooses to respect and serve her husband, the gospel message and the goodness of God's creation pattern is again confirmed among us. And every time we see a saint of God die in full faith, that confirms again God's promise that He will keep us to the very end. We could go on and on, but the point for us to remember tonight is that when we're tempted to doubt the testimony of Christ, when we're tempted to walk pridefully in our own strength and boast in our own giftings like the Corinthians, we need to remember the testimony of Christ. It's a particular help when we are struggling to think back how Christ has been faithful Throughout biblical revelation, throughout church history, and throughout your life, in the life of our church, in the life of the church universal, and he will be faithful in the future. The testimony of Christ is confirmed over and over and over again. Now moving on in our text, we can look at the third point. In verse 7, Paul says that They are not lacking in any gift. They lacked no gift. I'll read it again. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the you in the beginning of verse 7 is a plural you, speaking to the whole church. So if you'll permit me a little artistic license, we could translate it this way even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that y'all ain't lacking no gift. Paul is masterfully weaving together a thanksgiving introduction to his letter that is shifting the focus away from the Corinthian believers who thought they were hot stuff and shifting the focus instead on Christ. But in that shifting, lest we think that he's minimizing or denigrating the spiritual gifts, or the charismata, that's the Greek word, he confirms in this verse that they were indeed given gifts by Christ and given in sufficient kind and quantity. The spiritual gifts here ought not be limited to the supernatural gifts, some of which he discusses later in the book. Paul elsewhere uses the Greek word charismata to refer to the gift of redemption. Romans 5.15, Romans six. 23, for example. So the overall picture, I believe, is that as the testimony of Christ is confirmed among God's people, God will supernaturally grace His people with the gift of salvation. And then afterwards, will secondarily gift His church with sufficient gifts to ensure the church's proper order and function. Those whom God saves, he will equip. And equip them not for their own glory, but for the building up of others and for the building up of the church. But our minds don't always think in these terms. In fact, corporately, we can doubt the truthfulness of what is being affirmed here in Corinth. We can be tempted to look at our church and glance over at the other church over there and that church over there, and we can start to... Be a little less satisfied with what we had. We start to lament. If we just had blank. right? If we just had someone like him. If we just had a leader that was as charismatic as that guy. If we just had a pastor like him. If we just had a deacon like him. Or a Sunday school teacher like her. If we just had a more eloquent speaker. If we just had someone like fill in your favorite preacher. If we just had this or that or this better gift among us, then our church would be better off. Then we'd really get what we need. Then I could genuinely feel satisfied. Then I could get what I need. Without realizing it, in those statements, we reveal that we have doubt. We doubt the goodness of the gifts that God has sovereignly gifted to his body through the work of the Holy Spirit. We think we know what we need. And what the church needs, better than our loving and all-wise heavenly Father. Rather than trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit to sufficiently gift according to his good will, we can be tempted to lament and complain and eventually shop around and compare with others. Right? You could hear the church in Corinth. it's not hard. Right? If we only had a preacher like, like Philippi has, we'd be set then we would then we would get the bud we'd meet our budget quotas right if we only had a counselor like they have in macedonia man that guy's great man i wish we still had that guy that went off to athens he was solid and at the root of it all can be unbelief in god and a lack of trust in the holy spirit's gifting and work among god's people Rather than trusting that God calls and equips us with what we need, we can be tempted to grumble and complain. But the gospel reminds us that Christ came and died in the place of discontented, doubtful sinners like the Corinthians and like us. And the same God who has forgiven us through the sacrifice of His Son has also planted within us a heart that responds to His word. The same God who accepts the righteousness of Christ and counts it as our own will not also then leave us without the gifts we need for life and growth in this age. The God who grants us all things in Christ has promised to work for our good, which includes granting the church the gifts it needs for proper functioning and nourishment. Let us not think of ourselves higher than we ought and think that we know what the church needs better than God's very own Holy Spirit. God is good to save and he will be good to keep us in the faith by granting us the gifts needed for our continued care in this age. Because the testimony of Christ was confirmed among the Corinthians, they were lacking in no gifts. And we too will lack in no gifts as long as the testimony of Christ continues to be confirmed among us. Not the testimony of any man, the testimony of Christ. So let us ever strive to confidently rest in the Holy Spirit's wisdom and the distribution of His gifts among God's people. Fourth, and finally, we've looked at the testimony of Christ, its sufficiency, its confirmation, at their lack of no gifts. And finally, let's see what they were to do with these gifts. And that is to eagerly await eagerly await the revealing of Jesus Christ. Verse six again, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait eagerly for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Waiting is the disposition of a Christian in this age. Eagerly awaiting the revealing of Christ, joyfully anticipating the unveiling of Of the Lord Jesus. But waiting is hard. I have never met. A human being who enjoys waiting. There may be one. I haven't met him yet. We sit at the red light. And we get frustrated. We sit in the waiting room. And we get annoyed. We're waiting for for news. We're waiting for change. We're waiting for growth. We're waiting for improvement. We're waiting and waiting and waiting. We don't like it. We want what we want, and we want it now. How dare these fools make me wait? Don't they know how important my plans are? I'm in a rush. We can do the same thing in our spiritual life as well. We can get depressed and have despair because we see all the sin in the world, we see all the brokenness, we see all the problems, and we subtly and slowly begin to forget that Jesus is actually coming back rather than eagerly awaiting we get impatient and we shift our attention to something else i.e. the world and we just begin to exist, we, we drift we wake up we go to work, we do what we need to do we go to bed and the cycle continues over and over and over and over and we do it for weeks and months without once thinking that Jesus is coming back Jesus is coming back life Distracts us. The cares of the world, the affairs and busyness of everyday life is pulling us away, and the testimony of Christ has been confirmed among us. And if that is so, then the return of Christ should be great news for us. We'll be thinking about his return, we'll be diligent to prepare for his return, we'll be like the virgins in Jesus' parable who kept their lamps ready for the return of the bridegroom. We'll be ever vigilant in our purity, not letting sin get so close to us. We'll be ever focused on our devotion to Him, ever proclaiming the gospel of Christ, the excellencies of Christ, as we just read in 1 Peter. We will be ready for the return. And the world can't understand this. It makes no sense. It's foolishness, right? So you're telling me a previously dead Jewish guy is going to come back in the sky riding a horse at the sound of a lot of trumpets and he's going to judge everyone that's ever lived. Yes, he is. He is coming back. To the believer, to the one who has had the testimony of Christ confirmed in his heart, that is the best news. This is the news that sustains us through this life. It's the news that makes us able to turn the other cheek when we've been sinned against. It's the news that steals our nerves when we face fearful situations. It's the news that emboldens martyrs as they proclaim the gospel, even as they're put to death. This is the good news that helps us eagerly await so that we don't give up and fall asleep. Are you weary, dear Christian? Are you ready to give up? Then let's remember again the good news of Christ. Imminent return. These are the last days and he's coming back. And why, why is that good news, Pastor? Why is that good news? Well, let me, let me give us four reasons why it is good news. First, Christ's imminent return is good news because he, re, he will reward your good works. He will give rewards for your good works. Christ has seen all of your hard work. He's seen all of your trials, all of your labors, all of your attempts to do what is right, and all of those works are not done in vain. Feels like it sometimes. Is anybody even noticing? Does this even matter? He will not lose count of a single one of your good works. Even though no other soul may be aware of some of the things you've done, God has seen every one of them. And not only that, he has seen each and every one of your works through the mediation of Christ, our great high priest. Which is important. And that means that he doesn't see your good works as tainted with any kind of sin. And therefore not worthy of anything. He sees your good works through the priestly work of Jesus Christ, which means they are Pure. And they satisfy and delight our heavenly Father in all righteousness. This is very encouraging. Our confession, chapter 16, paragraph 7, says it this way Believers are accepted through Christ, and thus their good works are accepted in Him. Prepositions matter. Big deal. This acceptance doesn't mean that our good works are completely blameless and irreproachable in God's sight. Instead, God views them in His Son. And so he is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, even though, it is, even though it is accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. Our weak and feeble works, our best efforts, are seen in Christ. And because God sees them through the work of his Son, he delights in them, and he loves them, and he cherishes them. God sees our weak works through the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ in our place, and because they are accepted in Him, God is delighted and satisfied in us, just as much as He is delighted and is satisfied in the work of His Son. And just as His Son has earned His reward, so too will we be rewarded when Christ is revealed. So take heart, your good works are seen and they will be repaid when Christ is revealed to us. Second, a second reason why the unveiling of Christ is good news for the believer is that he will judge the wicked. Christ will judge the wicked. If you have been wronged, if you've been sinned against, if you are the offended party, then you know that life can be exasperating. Your frustration at the lack of justice and the victory that injustice always seems to have in this world can drive you crazy. The wicked always seem to be getting away with murder, and it doesn't seem fair. But this isn't new. David wrote about this many places in the Psalms, and we need to remember what he says. Listen to some of the things he says from Psalm 37. Don't fret because of the evildoers, and don't be envious of the wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the herb. The evildoers will soon be cut off from the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked draw their sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy and to slay those whose way is upright. But the wicked sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. There are many others. You can read that for homework. The point is, the unveiling of Jesus Christ is good news to the believer because he knows that the wicked will be finally and completely stopped. Injustice will be put to an end, and justice will be perfectly served. We can eagerly await Christ's unveiling, even through terrible suffering and injustice in this life because we know what Paul says in Romans twelve nineteen, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Now, if you have not yet come to Christ, then you need to know that this is your fate. This is talking about you. He will see the sins of your heart and the sins of your hands and he will swiftly and justly strike you from the land. He will drive you from this life and this world and He will plant you forever in a place of eternal punishment and suffering that the Bible calls hell. Do not live the rest of your life in fear of that coming judgment. You can have your fear and your hatred replaced with eager anticipation of Christ's return. All you have to do is hear of this Jesus told about in the pages of scripture. Hear of His love for His people and Turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. He is the only one that can save you from the wrath to come. Your good works will never be enough to save you. Jesus' return is good news for the believer. For the one who has had Christ's testimony confirmed. Because he will judge the wicked. But that is terrifying news for the unbeliever because he will be the focus of Christ's judgment sword. Third third reason why Christ's unveiling is good news is because he will rule with equity he will rule with equity similar to the previous point living under fallen authority in this life can be very wearisome we have leaders at every level of government that is and on all sides of the political spectrum that are sinful they fail us They make promises and then fail to come through. They guarantee and don't deliver. They rule either in a domineering way or they rule out of cowardice and fear. The rulers of this age don't rule with perfect equity. They can't. They're sinners. They are fallen just like me and you. And the same is true of any human authority you have. Parents, teachers, coaches, bosses, pastors. Every one of them sinful. All of them are flawed and exercise authority in ways that are tainted by sin in some measure. But Jesus is not so. Jesus' return will consummate a kingdom of equity and of justice. He will rule with perfect love and compassion. Rule according to perfect truth and perfect knowledge. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's no wisdom he lacks. He will perfectly rule. No unfairness will ever be found. There will be no untimely delays. There will be no rescheduling. No delaying of the court proceedings. There will be no procrastination. Nothing can impede His justice. Nothing will delay His verdicts. Nothing will challenge His authority. The unveiling of Christ will be a blessed occasion for joy for all believers. Because for the first time in their existence, they will experience what it's like to live under perfect authority. The authority of a perfectly just and equitable ruler. Fourth, fourth and final reason why Christ's unveiling is good news for the believer and worthy of our eager awaiting is that Christ will create for us a world of peace and love. Christ is creating for us a world of peace and love. I had the privilege again recently of rereading. Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Heaven is a World of Love, and I commend it to you. It's the 15th and final sermon he did from 1 Corinthians 13 on love. It's called Heaven is a World of Love, and it's so encouraging. It's free online. You can look it up. He says way more and way better than what I'm about to say, but humility is a good thing. So here we go. The world that we live in now is decidedly not full of peace. It's full of unrest. It's full of hatred. It's dominated by chaos. It's dominated by strife and enmity. Nations and neighbors, war. They rage against one another. Kings and peoples posture and they battle. But the unrest is not merely external. It's internal too. Our hearts are conflicted. We want to be holy but we don't choose to be. keep going back and forth. We're battling all the time. Our hearts are muddled by sin. We, we, We can't have perfect allegiance. We crave it. We want it. We know it's good mentally and yet sin is right around us all the time. We war with the flesh. We experience the Christian life as a battle We're warring against our remaining sinful nature. We're warring against the principalities and powers of the spiritual realm. But the encouragement is that one day, when Christ is revealed, the war will be over. The new heavens and the new earth are being created to be a world of peace and love for us to enjoy forever. We'll no longer have a world torn apart by strife. We'll no longer have to experience fear of the next attack whenever it comes. Fear of the next storm in this life. Fear of the next election. Fear of the next whatever. What's more, we'll have hearts that are finally and perfectly at peace. There's a reason why Jesus says, come to me and you'll have rest. No more anxiousness and worrisome, toilsome labor in this life. We'll be able to completely and joyfully experience the love of God without any impediments of our remaining sin. No more corruption of the flesh. No more bodies that fail and decay. No more will our affections be split between what we do and what we don't want to do. Just love. The fullness of God's love everywhere. And think about it too. We've talked about temple. I'll go on a little rabbit trail for a second. God's presence was specifically revealed in the temple in the old covenant. God was everywhere. He was still omnipresent. But he specifically had his love of benevolence manifesting itself there. And then in the new covenant... The Holy Spirit fills all of the living stones in the people of God. He's building a temple, but his presence is still localized in that particular expression. Heaven will be experiencing God's divine essence of love everywhere. Heaven is a world of love. Every square inch, God's essence will be. Not so in hell. It will be the opposite. But that's another sermon for another day. Doesn't this world that awaits us, this world of peace and love inside and out, a world of love between neighbors and nations, a world of love between our hearts and God, doesn't that sound glorious? Isn't that encouraging for your soul to keep awaiting eagerly for the revealing of Christ? Believer, when you're weary of this world, then remember the testimony of Christ about the world to come. Remember the good news Of our faithful witness who grants us these glorious graces. And will in due time grant us entrance into his world of love. Now tonight we have another grace. A physical, visible reminder of Christ's work seen in the Lord's Supper. We have pictured for us a visible, tangible way for us to remember the gospel. We can see His love for us and the symbols of His body broken and His blood spilled for us. This meal is for those in the household of God, those marked by the fruit of discipleship that are listed in Acts 2, that is devoted to apostolic teaching found in God's Word, to the fellowship of the body, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. If that describes you, then come and taste again of the Lord's Supper and have the testimony of Christ again confirmed in your soul. Think again of the love of Christ that is demonstrated in his sacrifice for us. But if you're not yet in the household of God or you're not yet baptized, then please let these plates pass. Come to Christ and be joined to him. Have his testimony confirmed in your heart and then you too can join us at the table. Now if you're at the end of the row, I ask you to slide the ropes off so that our table servants can come right in front of you and pass the plate or serve you from the plate directly. I'll pray and then our table servants will come. Holy Father, we praise you and thank you for the gift of life in Christ. And We pray that you would take these elements, this juice and this bread, that you would set them apart, that you would use them in a mighty way as visible pictures of the gospel of grace, of the the message, the testimony of Christ himself. And by doing so, that you would build up your church. In Christ's name I pray, Amen. Table servants, please come.